many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores! What a year it's been in sports 2019. And welcome to The Outsiders. Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. How are you doing today? I'm excellent, Brent. How about you, man? Fine, thanks. Well, we've been doing this for about six months. We haven't been around for all of this. We were not around when Tiger won at the Masters, much to everybody's surprise. Uh, Bianca winning at the U.S. Open. There's been a lot of big, huge events that have kind of surprised a lot of people. But uh, on, on our big podcast, we've been trying to track down people that we know, but maybe don't fully know. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this over the, over the past six months. Have you? Oh, absolutely. And and the great thing is, to this point, nobody's kicked the front door down and told us to stop. <laughs> no, you're right. Just keep rolling. And the positive feedback we're getting from everybody is huge. And uh, everybody's been very encouraging. The next step for us in the new year is to continue to book great guests that you want to hear. And also, now it's time to start asking some folks if they wouldn't mind supporting us in some manner to help us stay on the air. And so we'll start looking for some potential clients. Has anybody uh, written you, Brennan, and just said, you guys suck? No. Have we had that yet? No, no, and I will tell you, it's the one refreshing thing about doing a podcast as opposed to just being on the air over the radio waves. And that is the fact that over the radio waves, anybody just turn the radio on, they can listen to you, and they either love you or hate you. Well, the hate people are not going to bother wasting their time downloading a podcast to listen to one guy or two guys that they don't like. They're just not going to do it. Not one negative email from my family. I haven't had a single negative email from anybody. Excellent. It's been fantastic. So a big thank you to everybody for that. We'll tell you how you can reach us at the end of today's best of show. It's hard to believe we're doing a best of show. I know we've only been on for six months, but we've had some fun guests. It's been really, really enjoyable. Well, the nice thing is, Bryn, um, and not to toot our own horn too loud, there's been more than once when we've looked across this desk at each other when one of our guests has been in the middle of an answer and we've both just nodded like, hey, this is gold. And with a show like this, we've tried to clip some of that stuff and, and put it together because we've had a terrific lineup for the most part and um, some real enlightening stuff's come out of them too. Well, this is the best of the Outsiders Holiday Show. We're with you for the next two weeks right through until the 5th of January. It's uh, it's the holiday show, as I said, sampling of some of the more thought-provoking and fun interviews we've done since we kicked things off over the summer months. Our very first guest was not a hard guest to convince to come on with us because we have both known him for such a long time. And I, I was thinking about this last night, that after Bob Cole decided it was time to step away from the microphone, he, he's become the elder statesman of play-by-play voices in Canada. But it, his, his mark on Canadian sports goes back a long way. And if you start looking back at your your soundtrack of your sporting life, I'll guarantee you Chris Cuthbert is probably on half of those memorable moments that you followed when you were, uh, you know, a real big sports fan and still are to this very day. Is that not fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And a hell of a guy. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, we had Chris on and it was fun. We talked to him for about 35 minutes and 
I guess the first thing we had to ask him, well, it was, it was a question that I, I was kind of curious about, and that is the fact that, okay, if you do all these memorable moments, do you have a favorite or do you have a 1A or a 1B? How do you look at it? When I look at some of those magical moments that you've done, obviously the golden goal is right there. But I, I often have wanted to ask you, what would be the number two moment for you? Not, I'm, Is that number one, first and foremost? Oh, it is number one, and I, I'd have trouble with the number two, to be honest with you. Um, I, I have fond memories of a number of Grey Cup games. Um, maybe the first one, which I, I, I'm not going to be very popular in, in Edmonton because it was the, uh, the 96 Grey Cup, which was, you know, for a lot of reasons, it was a spectacular game. Um, the, the wintry conditions, uh, it was high scoring, but it was my first Grey Cup and I was, I was wired, and I remember getting to the stadium. Uh, I'm about an hour away uh, from from where the game was, and when I left my home, it was overcast and kind of a dull day, but that was it. By the time I got to the stadium, we were in a full blizzard, and I was really let down because I thought the conditions were going to ruin the game, ruin my Grey Cup debut, but <laughs> it, it was anything but from Eddie Brown's amazing catch to uh, – well, to uh, a couple of big touchdown returns and uh, and even some controversy. Uh, Doug Flutie, I think, mentioned years later that uh, that a fumble that was ruled uh, uh, dead by a whistle should have been called a fumble and a recovery by the Eskimos. And anyway, it was just a spectacular game, and that's that's one of them. But I, I'd say there's about a half dozen great cups that are in that category, and, and I don't rate uh, individual hockey games as much as I do series. And there's been some amazing series that I've got to call over the years. And uh, um, those are the ones uh, from the 91 Oiler Flames series that went overtime in Game 7 to uh, the 94 Devils Rangers uh, that the Rangers won in overtime in Game 7 and went on to win their first Stanley Cup in a million years. Uh, there's a lot of those that stand out. And and a five-overtime game between uh Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, that's the longest TV game ever uh, back a few years ago that Keith Primo won. And Anyway, lots of those, and and uh, uh, and I could keep going because, uh, <laughs> again, I, I, I really would have trouble saying what my second favorite call is. There you go, Chris Cuthbert. Okay, Ron Lowe joined us this past uh, couple of months. We, we had to get him on because we wanted to talk about a guy that both you and I no, who passed away, and that was Ted Green. The nickname, Terrible Teddy Green, and both of us probably laughed when we read that because we knew that the one thing Teddy Green wasn't to us was terrible. That's the last thing Teddy Green <laughs> was. Uh, you spent a lot of time with these guys around the rink, Bryn. So did I. Um, Ronnie Lowe is a guy I got along with right from day one. Nobody's going to suggest he was the best coach uh, that the Edmonton Oilers have ever had. But I'll tell you this, uh, he was the most fun guy to work with and around, uh, got along with him instantly. Um, and you know the other thing too, he's a good man. And uh, he continues to do a lot of great stuff in uh, Edmonton today. And when you talk about Teddy Green, uh, which we asked him about, Teddy was very much the same. Terrible Ted Green. It makes people who know him laugh. Ted Green uh, had a heart of gold. Uh, he was a wonderful man who gave much back to this community. 
and uh, there were a lot of people uh, truly sad and some devastated uh, when he passed away. I remember he called me over once and he didn't like something I'd written and he didn't swear, he didn't yell, he didn't threaten, but he put one of those big meat hooks of his on my shoulder and he said, Robin, I don't think what you wrote uh, the other day uh, was right. And, and we had a discussion. At the end of it, he just smiled and all he said was, just be fair. He was so understated, so soft-spoken, and there was such a big heart under that exterior, you sometimes couldn't get to it unless you knew him. No, and and that is the truth. I mean, uh, when he talked in a dressing room, and very, Teddy didn't really do a whole lot. He didn't do a bunch of yelling, I'll tell you that. In fact, I don't know if I've ever heard him raise his voice in the dressing room, but all he had to do was look at you. And if he was talking in a pregame speech or after a period, uh, he would be giving his, uh, his little chat before you go back out in the ice. And if he was looking at you, <laughs> you knew where the comments were being directed. And believe me, like you said, if you wanted to stare down, it's one you wouldn't win if you were watching Teddy. Do you have a favorite story? Is there one that sticks out in your mind? Because there's so many. Well, I, I think one of the one of the all-time great stories about Teddy, and it happened in Washington, uh, D.C. one night. We were playing uh, the Caps, and Teddy was head coach, and we were, we were having a bit of a bitch of a time at that time. And I remember Sean Van Allen got just, <laughs> smoked I think was by Craig uh, Ludwig just uh-huh. drilled him knocked him out cold I mean and we're talking out cold and well he kind of stumbles off in his on his own two feet so we know he's not he's not deathly but we know he's hurt so the doc comes in and says Jesus Teddy he says we got uh, kind of bad news here he says the kid's totally out of it can't remember the hit and doesn't know who he is or where he's at. And Teddy says, well, when he wakes up, can you tell him he's Wayne Gretzky and we're in Washington and we need him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's classic, Teddy. Yeah, that's a, that's... No, I, and you know, I mean, and in the meantime, he's still feeling really bad for Sean because the minute Sean comes back into the room, I mean, he's, uh, he's really worried about him. But his wit at that point in time just caught me totally off guard and the doc didn't know what to say. It was just, it was crazy, but that's Teddy. Good friend of ours is Gene Principe does the hosting of the Edmonton Oler broadcast on Sportsnet. And uh, we've also known Gene for a very, very long time. I don't think there are too many people nicer in the media business than Gino. I will steal from uh, old hockey man Tommy McVie. If you can't get along with Gene Principe 100 times out of 100, you're the asshole. Yes. <laughs> and you're going to get along with Gene no matter who you are. Gene, I've seen Gene stopped in public, and he always gives people the time of day. And I, I you know what? It's been a, a tough month here for Gino because he lost his mother recently. And uh, when you take a look at your upbringing with your dad and your mom, 
and you see the reflection. I know Gene's mom would sit in the seats at Roger's place, and uh, of course people find out that you're Gene Principe's mom and would always have time for it. But you know what? Gene's mom always had time for other people, just like Gene. And so as much as the, the Principe family are going to miss Gene's mom, you can see that he is a chip off the old block. But you know what? And one of the things he pointed out to us is that it is not exactly easy being the local kid, especially in the, in the fervent community, the Italian community in Edmonton, where everybody thinks that just because you're the guy who's hosting those other broadcasts, you got an in. <laughs> well, I'm not as inside. Sometimes uh, I got uncles who, not so much now, but when Kevin Lowe was the GM, I've got uncles, you know, telling me, you should tell him to do this. You should tell him to do that. And I'm like, I don't like have an, I don't sit beside him and have an office beside him. And even when, uh, of course, being Italian, when Peter Shirelli was the GM, they figured I could just, you know, kind of over some, uh, you know, prosciutto and a, and a cappuccino, we could talk over trade ideas, but it didn't quite, uh, didn't quite work like that. Peter, Peter, have a sandwich. We need to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny though. Like, honestly, when he got hired, um, right away, first of all, my parents were like, it's not, it, you know, it's like Emma Shirelli. It's Garelli. Garelli is the way they would say it back in the old country. But as you guys know, come over, people come over and whether you're Finnish or Swedish, the names get kind of, uh, oh, you know, changed yes. or North Americanized. So that was one of them. And then my mom would always say, Grimaldi." So she would say, Ashley's from Grimaldi, which is a small town in Italy. And I'm like, my, he's not like, you know, Peter was very, you know, businesslike and we didn't have a lot of opportunities to just sort of, uh, socialized, but the Italian community was, you know, since Fernando Pisani, I think he was the sort of the, the, the biggest Italian attraction uh, to the others. Of course, Andrew, you know, Cogliano, Cogliano. So the Italian community, like any community, sort of connects with uh, someone of their own when they end up being involved with the orders in any way, shape, or form. Well, it's funny because for the longest time when I worked with Brian Hall at CJCA on the Eskimo broadcast, and Halsey was always Louis Pesaia. And yeah, course, right. That's and, right. And everybody used to just make fun of Brian, like, oh, my God, he's bastardizing another name and everything. <laughs> and, and so one, one time I had a chance to talk to Louis, and I said, hey, yeah. listen, and I didn't do this on the air because I didn't want to, you know, embarrass Brian or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I said... Is it Pisaglia or is it Pisaglia? He said the G is silent like in lasagna. Halsey's actually yeah. correct, but yes. it's turned no, that's, into that's Louis right. Pisaglia. <laughs> yeah, right. The, the G is, is is silent. I mean, I'm one to talk. My name, if, if you're in Italy, it's Principe, right? Yeah. So Say what? Principe is, 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 yeah, exactly. What? It's Principe. I mean, so, but you come over here and it, it just sort of gets changed a little bit. But anyways, uh, yeah. Uh, it was. It's interesting when whether uh, it doesn't matter the uh, whether you you know like the German uh, the German people of Edmonton now have you know connected with Leon. It's 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 a natural right when you yeah. get situations like that. I mean, it's just kind of the way it works. So you're proud of of the Oilers, and you're proud of certain people who have uh, you know a common background or a culture that you have. One of the guests that we had this past year, Theron Fleury was one of our earlier guests and made a hell of an impact with his comments. The other thing that, I, that I've noticed is that going back through the various interviews we've done, Theo, 
Theo's name comes up frequently, as you're going to find out through the rest of this show today. Theo's name comes up an awful lot with some of our other guests because he's made a mark with them. But so much has been said and written about uh, the the horrible situation that Theo went through, both in junior hockey and also it, you can see it was reflected in some of the off-ice antics as a professional hockey player. But Theo was a great guest. Oh, he was. And you know what? Everybody now knows Theo's story, but it took a long, long time for it to get out. And the thing with Theo is, as most people now know, is he has turned around what can be, well, what was a life-altering situation, but that can break you. And sadly, it's broken a lot of people. Not with Theo. Uh, He's gone on uh, to become a real advocate for people struggling with mental health issues, sexual abuse, uh, drug or alcohol addiction, and Theo has taken, you know, he's climbed out of the ruins of what was a terrible period in his life to become a real advocate for people, and he's straight ahead now, and he's every bit as determined uh, in that advocacy as he was on the ice. And he found the strength to write the book. That was a huge thing for him. But he told us one story. He said it was an aha moment for him when he realized this is what I got to do. Well, I would say the first book signing actually changed my life and changed my direction in how I viewed my own personal situation. So when I sat down to write the book, the only thing I was going to talk about was my hockey career. And the lady that I wrote the book with, she made me feel, you know, relatively safe right from the very uh, beginning of writing the book. And so three years later, we finished the book and, and, uh, you know, I tell the whole entire story. Four days before I'm going to Toronto to launch this book, like I'm shitting in my pants and I'm like so afraid and so scared because I don't know how, you know, the public's going to react to what's in the book. And I also knew that I was going to be going to do a whole bunch of media surrounding the book. And I knew that the only thing that the media would be interested in would be to re-victimize me at every opportunity, right? Because I'm a pretty smart and bright guy. I uh, spent four days on my computer researching absolutely every single thing I could find on the subject of child sexual abuse. Because I wanted to get a story of hope and healing and recovery you know, out to the masses. So sure enough, I, I show up in Toronto. I do like 300 interviews in the first four days that I'm there. I'm on big red couch with Strombo, TSN, Sportsnet, every major newspaper, magazine, morning radio show. I do it all. And sure enough, the only thing they're interested in is the gory details right. of my sexual abuse. But like a good politician, you never have to answer the reporter's questions directly. So it didn't matter what question they asked me, I made sure that I had five main points that I wanted to get across in every single interview that I did. And so I got this story of hope and healing and recovery out there. And then, you know, the next thing on the docket was the first book signing. And uh, my expectations for the book were really low. I thought I'd show up and sign 10 books and go to the next town and sign 10 books and so on and so forth. So I show up at the biggest Indigo chapter store in all of Canada, downtown Toronto. 
uh, right on Young Street there. And I walked through the front doors of the bookstore, and there are 400 people standing in line with my book. And I'm like, geez, like, what are all these people doing here? This is very weird and strange, you know? <laughs> and so I start signing books, and I spot this guy in line. And he's got my book clutched against his chest, and his face is buried in the floor. And, you know, he was uh, visibly disheveled. He was wearing, you know, dirty sweatpants, a ripped T-shirt. His hair was fairly greasy. And I was like, hmm, you know, I wonder what's up with this guy. So I follow him all the way in the line. He gets to the front of the line, puts the book on the table, looks me in the eye, and says, me too. Wow. And wow. and that's basically, you know, was like an exclamation point as to, you know, why I put all this on paper. And then what happened after that is I got completely run over by people everywhere I went. Five, 10, 15, 20 people were coming up to every, uh, at every book signing and saying, hey, I, I read your book. You told my story. Me too. Or, hey, I saw your documentary. You told my story. Me too. Hey, I read uh, an article in the newspaper. You told my story. Me too. And so basically for the last 10 and a half, 11 years, you know, that's that's been my life is, you know, everywhere I go, you know, people come up to me and say, hey, I, uh, I found the courage and the strength to find my own voice by, you know, by your example. And, and so, you know, it's just been absolutely incredible to be that sort of conduit for people to, you know, seek me out or search me out to find me so that they can tell me their me too story. It's been an interesting six months for Craig McTavish, former guy with the Edmonton Oilers. What didn't he do? He played here, coached here. GM tier, mm-hmm. decided to go to the Continental Hockey League. That didn't last very long, but a lot of people had warned him about the situation he was going into. It was a little volatile, but he's uh, he's always got that positive demeanor. Every time I've met him and talked to him, and I've known him for as long as you have, he's always pretty upbeat, is he not? Well, oh, absolutely. You know, Mac T's just got that coaching bug. You know, he was a, a, a terrific oiler, obviously. Won cups here with the Oilers. Went to New York. Got into the cup parade there. Became an assistant coach there. Made his way back to Edmonton under uh, Kevin Lowe. You know, became a, a, a longtime coach here who had some success. He was behind the bench in that 06 Cup final appearance. One went away from winning it all. Yes. Yes. Or one injury to Dwayne Rollison away that from winning too. it all. But you know what? It's never looked back. It's never sour grapes. You know, along the way, he left Edmonton, and that was a terrible time for him because you know the ties that keep him here. Went away, went and coached in Chicago mm-hmm. with the Wolves. You know, went back to did some schooling. He keeps coming back kind of like a salmon to the stream. (laughs) Mac T has got the coaching bug. You go to the KHL, you know, it's it didn't work out. You he was gone almost before he got unpacked. You know, Spengler Cup. He's there right now. You know, he's just he's got the energy. And the funny thing is, Mac T, I know I don't always have the most energy. 
MACT is exactly one day older than me. We're the same age. So he, you know, he just says, hey, I got a lot of life to live uh, and more coaching to do. So it's no surprise that uh, this coaching bug has still got him in, his, in its grips. It's years zip by. I remember when you were still in New York and I was talking to you about coming in to Edmonton and joining the staff here. There's a lot of water under the bridge since then. You come to Edmonton, you have that uh, many years here, you have the, the cup run, um, you end up leaving Edmonton, uh, you end up coming back to Edmonton, <laughs> you go to Yaroslavl, uh, now Spengler Cup, You've got, uh, what's this coaching bug you've got? You, I mean, you could walk away if you wanted to and go sit by the lake and uh, contemplate life, yeah. but you're still in the mix. Well, I've got a lot of living to do, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm fortunate in uh, respect to being in a position where I can uh, choose to do things that I really want to do. And, uh you know, it's, uh, I like the coaching. I really enjoyed working with the, uh, players in the KHL. Uh, it had, had its challenges for sure, but, uh, overall it was a wonderful experience over there working with the players. I really enjoyed that part of it. And, uh, you know, it just dovetailed into, uh, into going and coaching Canada at the Spangler. So it's going to be another great experience. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but I, I've always liked to stay busy, but I've not done a lot really, uh, over the, over the last, uh, month and a half or two months I've had, you know, treated myself well, went on vacation. Uh, I've really enjoyed, uh, going to the Oiler games, I've got season tickets at the Oiler games and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't think, I didn't know how I'd react to going to the games, but I've, I've loved it. It's, uh. It's uh, it's a great experience, and certainly sitting down in with the fans lower to the ice level gives you a much better perspective on on the game. I think uh, you know when you watch the games from the press box, where you guys watch the games, or where we were watching the games from the eyebrow on the other side of the press box, it just you just lose so many of the important aspects of the game. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. The Oilers have been great to watch. Uh, McDavid, obviously, and Dreisaitl are just, you know, amazing to, to watch. We're really lucky to be able to watch those two guys night in and night out. And they just continue to get better and more dominant, uh, which, which, which uh, you know, we, we're, we're really, really fortunate to have both those guys. And a couple guys that I've seen this year that have really made a big difference. Uh, one would be uh, Ethan Bear, mm -hmm. for sure. Yep. That uh, I mean, just the puck movement and the way he's played has really solidified the defense, and especially that pairing with Darnell. They've been really good from the games that I've seen. I haven't seen them all, but uh, he's he's played. Uh, when you're in the minors, a lot of times you hear, and I believe it to be true, that playing in the NHL is sometimes, and in a lot of ways, easier than playing in the American Hockey League because everything's more organized. Uh, the execution is uh, at, a, at a better level, a greater level. And 
Ethan Bear can think the game and, and move the puck. And he's, he's really, uh, in a lot of ways, he's playing better here than uh, he did last year in Bakersfield. And he was really good down there last year. So he's been good. Cassian, I like the grinders. And <laughs> he really, he, he really brings a lot uh, Mm-hmm. For me, I enjoy him, but uh, have really enjoyed watching the Oilers this year. You know, this is going to be a fun interview because it's going to be just like having a coffee with you in the coach's room because we're going to be all over the place. Because I was going to ask you yeah. a question about the K. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. But i got to ask you, so you're sitting in the crowd now watching these games. How is that? How is everybody in the section you're in? They're awesome. I mean, they're great. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, yes. Great Oiler fans, very supportive. I mean, the team's been easy to support. I mean, uh, I might not have wanted to be there last year, <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, they've been great. Uh, they're really respectful to me, and uh, you know, just uh, I've had a great time. I know everybody around the section around me, and you know, my I go to the game with my kids and uh, my wife, and it's it's. Uh, it's, it's great entertainment. Stu Grimson has a big book out, obviously talking about his career as a National Hockey League pugilist. That's a good word. I never use that. There's a word you never use on a regular basis. I love the word it's a great. It's a great word, but if I was going to have a coffee or beer with you and we we're talking about fighters, I'm not so sure I would use that word. No. I used it here. Anyway, Stu Grimson joined us on the show. Another one of those guys where we needed to ask a simple yet complex question. I got to ask you kind of a, a bit of an offbeat question. Who gave you the most trouble on the opposition? And it's a two-parter. Who created the most problems for you on your own teams? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, I'll answer the second question first, the latter question first. You know, there are lots and lots of guys that uh, that made my job a little more challenging just in terms of, um, you know, keeping keeping me and my other teammates on our toes. Theron Fleury was <laughs> a teammate in, in Salt Lake City for about half a year. He was terrorizing the league on the score sheet and, and certainly on the ice. And he was just – he was a handful while he was out there. He took no prisoners – you know, for a smaller guy, he played with a real, you know, a, a, a real nasty edge, and he he just he wasn't shy. And of course, for you know, for guys like myself, we had to, we had to be ever mindful that you know Theo might be you know inches from, or, or just a you know another high sticking infraction or or something from from kind of setting off. Uh, setting off World War One on the ice. So we, we were always pretty mindful of the way uh, of the way the game was going when when we played for Theo. And I'll tell you, you know, in just in terms of your first question and the guys that used to give me as, you know, in terms of that enforcer type role, the guys that used to give me the greatest challenge, I'll just I'll put all the left handers in the same category. Guys like George LaRock, guys like Dave Brown, uh, for whatever reason and a lot of right handed dominant right-handed guys will tell you lefties are a challenge to fight. And that was certainly true of, of guys like George and, and big Dave. I'm very fond of saying I'd probably still be playing today. Were it not for lefties. How long have you known Mark Spector for? Well, I got to the journal in uh, December of 1989 and 
he uh, looked like he was doing handstands, frankly, because upon my arrival, uh, we were the only two young-ish single guys in the sports department. <laughs> Everybody at that point was uh, uh, home for dinner at uh, 6 o'clock when they were in town, and uh, we had some fun when I first got here. And, uh, yeah, I've known him a long time, so 89, do the math. Uh, it's been a while. And he and I got started at CJSR Radio. It's a campus station in the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And uh, I, I convinced Speck that I thought he could do play-by-play for the Juve Golden Bear basketball team. I was doing the hockey play-by-play with Claire Drake. He got to work with a great coach named Don Horwood, who was able to help him through things a little bit. But Speck did a nice job. But his first love, obviously, was writing. Also wrote for the Gateway, which is the newspaper there yeah. at the U of A, and then just worked his way up. Like a lot of the, a lot of the newspaper people in Edmonton had worked their way through the Gateway. I think Cam Cole was one of those guys. There's a mm-hmm. bunch of guys. Anyway, we had Spec on the show, and one of the things we we're talking about, and the timing is right, because right now the World Junior Hockey Championships getting rolling in the Czech Republic, and uh, Spec talked with us about how he got involved about writing his new book about the World Junior Hockey Championship. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I, I, I won't even brag and say that it's my idea. I, I basically got a call from a publisher and said, you know, we just think of this idea of, of doing something on the sort of the history of the World Junior. We're calling it Road to Gold. And it's a story about how, you know, in the 70s, we used to send the, the Memorial Cup champs over to Leningrad and they'd get beat up by the Russians, yeah. right? They couldn't, they couldn't beat anybody. They'd lost their good players from last year. They didn't know how to play Europe, hockey in Europe. They didn't understand the European referees. We had no system. We had no continuity. And we were getting killed in this thing. And, and you know, Canada came up with a program of excellence and, you know, really put a focus on getting good at this. And today, all of a sudden, not suddenly, but over the many years, today, the world junior is to Canadians at Christmas what football is to Americans at Thanksgiving, right? It's a yeah. family affair and it's a deep, deep, deep tradition. And, you know, we've gone from winning everything all the time, five, six years in a row, to being back in the fight in the world junior, right? It's not a given that Canada wins that thing anymore. No, absolutely. Hey, Speck, uh, two quick ones for me. Where can people get the book if they want it? Because we're into that Christmas season now. And uh, second question, will you be trying to move any copies at uh, Henry's High Life in San Jose? (laughs) (laughs) I love Henry's High Life. That's a barbecue joint, one of the best in the league, man. Uh, Hey, books books everywhere. Uh, all chapters and I think Walmarts and certainly on Amazon and anywhere you buy a book, you should be able to buy this book. Uh, but yes, thanks Robin. That's a good call. I got an off night tonight in San Jose and uh, you know what? I haven't had the meat sweats for a while, so maybe that's a good place to go. Darren Drager's joined us twice on our show. I don't know how we're able to be so lucky to get him on our show twice, but we have. Have we had to pay him yet? Uh, no. But we'll figure something out when he comes to town next. That's for sure. Uh, we got to thank him big time for that. But, you know, one of the things we were talking about, and this goes back to the first time we chatted with him, and we were talking about some of the big contracts this past off season. And uh, Darren told us, obviously, it's a big cat-and-mouse game. It's always been one. 
But we started to weigh some of the things that happened over the summer months a little bit, and he gave us his take on things and where it might lead to by the time we get to next summer. There's got to be a little bit of eye-rolling in the commissioner's office looking at some of these contracts paying out, right? Because, you know, when you invest so deeply into a few players, as, as Toronto has specifically, um, you're, you're, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. And if it doesn't pan out, then what do you do? You know, you're stuck. And you, you look at the unrestricted free agents that Toronto is going to have to wrangle with at the end of this year, which includes Tyson Berry, who, I mean, if yeah. Tyson Berry has another 60-plus point season, he's going to command top dollar on the open market. Toronto's not going to be able to afford that. You've got Cody Ceci, who is a good, dependable NHL defenseman. You've got Jake Muzzin, three defensemen who are going to be unrestricted free agents next year. And, you know, I, I'm not projecting that the salary cap is going to go to $90 million in the next two years. So it's going to come at someone's expense. There's no question about that. Did you like that Morrissey number? Do you think yeah. that that's, that's really going to be setting the tone for a lot of these uh, future deals here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say he's underrated because I think we've seen enough of Josh Morrissey to know what he is yeah. um, and, and what he's developing into. To get him on that term at 6.25, I mean, it's not a steal. You're talking about $50 million, but that's just, that's money well spent. And that that's quality management by the, the Winnipeg Jets. And and look, some players, guys, you know, this has been around the game a long time. You know, Josh Morrissey obviously isn't, you know, one of those players that wants to play with the uncertainty every couple or three years. You know, he probably could have said, you know what, now nah, I'm going to take a two or a three year deal and we'll see where it goes. I mean, they probably could have bridged him yet again um, at around five, five and a half, and, and then he commands more. But instead, you know, he looks at $50 million on the mm-hmm. table yeah. and says, um, my family's family's family are going to feel the financial legacy of this contract and the next contract. So I'm happy with that. And I, I look, I know the jets are over the moon. Um, they've had enough contract issues and they'll continue to have those issues moving forward. But this guy's not only a hell of a hockey player, as we can see, he is top level character. So they've got a real good leadership piece in, uh, in the fold for a number of years. He's really a great guy. He can rub some people the wrong way. He is a wealth of information about the game of hockey. If you ask who was playing on a a particular line with so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, Bob Stauffer will be able to tell you it was so-and-so. He's got that mind like a steel trap. I envy Bob because I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. (laughs) And, yeah, it's it's funny. It's uh, encyclopedic almost. Uh, You know what? Bob is a straight shooter. You know, he says what he thinks. You know, he's with the he's with the uh, rights holder in six thirty Chad, of course. But I tell you what, he tells it pretty straight. If you listen to the various broadcast teams around the league, some of them toe a pretty tight line. Bob, uh, much like Rod Phillips before he left, the old play by play man for thirty seven years, Bob can be critical maybe not as critical as the hardcore fan out there who's frustrated given that the Oilers have missed the playoffs 12 of the last 13 years they want you know 
you got to ask the tougher questions. I tell you what, Bob asks pretty tough questions, and he knows what's going on. He knows what's up. And what I like about Bob is he telegraphs a lot of what's going to happen on the air without you're coming kidding. out and saying it. And that's a way of being cute because <laughs> I tell you what, when you're in that position, you hear things and see things that you can't just blurt out. You're not there to break news about the team when you're the color analyst on the radio show. But uh, Bob's pretty much on top of everything that's happening in that ring. There is a level of, uh, you know, he he's, uh, you're right, there's quiet... He's got a great way of just getting it out there without really getting it out there. It's very subliminal, and uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, Oilers Now is one of the most popular podcasts in the chorus radio world, coast-to-coast uh, coast in Canada. But we had Bob on. Not hard to get Bob on our show, that's for sure, and we always love it when he does come on. But one of the things we talked about was the fact that the Oilers really have been a, a an interesting surprise in the first half of the season thus far, but we had to ask what might uh, what might be different about this season compared to the past few? You're on the inside when fans say, "Well, we've we've been promised, or we, you know, they've pulled the football away from us more times than I can remember over the last decade or so." Why is it going to be different this year? Why do you think it's going to be different this year in terms of how the messages are delivered and the decisions are made right at the top with Ken Holland? Well, I can't guarantee that the team's going to suddenly become a 100-point team again. I mean, I think there's going to be some gradual improvement, and the opportunity for real growth might actually occur next summer in terms of upgrading it, just because of some of the cap challenges mm. that have been inherited from the Shirelli regime. Um, you know, Robin, it's it's probably been at least, what, a decade since you were sort of the beat guy. And, yep. Uh, you know, it... it the one thing that's changed is things like what you guys are doing now with the podcast, right? You got podcasts and you've got more bloggers than ever before. You got a whole entity in the athletic and you've got some people that never actually come down to practice. And, and I know both of you guys value that aspect of your roles and made sure Bryn, when you were the sports director and, you know, basically the station manager at 1260, you know, you'd be down there and, Robin, you were there every day. And, and so there's, you know, part of it's incumbent upon, I guess, the, the media to ask the right questions. I mean, this this misnomer out there that this is, like, nobody, and the other thing that's changed, guys, is Twitter, <laughs> frankly. Oh, yeah. so everybody's, got an, everybody's got an opinion. People, I mean, we have people reading Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl's face. Yeah. from yeah. Media, media availabilities in Toronto <laughs> at uh, at the Biosteel camp. So this is what this means. So to be honest with you, you guys, you guys both know, um, you both know Ken a bit. Uh, you both have experience dealing with Dave Tippett. What you see is what you get. Peter, in the end, I think Peter got quite uh, ex exclusive like he really didn't you know I, I know for a fact there were situations where he was strongly advised not to act on certain moves and he went ahead and did it anyways and it was it, it kind of you know like ken ken hitchcock had a lot of pull with peter upon coming in mm -hmm. because ken was gonna save peter at that stage of the game so uh long story short we'll see how she all transpires we talked earlier with uh, theo flurry uh, about everything he's gone through. Corey Hirsch does the 
color commentary on the Vancouver Canucks radio uh, broadcast crew, and uh, that's on TSN 1050. Corey's really struggled a lot with mental health issues, and uh, it was a, he was great. He was a great interview. And you've known him for a while, too. You know, Brennan, it, it's funny how quickly uh, time and life passes by. When I left the Kamloops Daily News to come to the Edmonton Journal uh, in 1989, Corey Hirsch was a scrawny 16-year-old carrot-top kid trying to break in as a goaltender with the Kamloops Blazers. All these years later, his hockey career unfolded. Uh, he had a decent run in the National Hockey League, but he struggled with uh, mental health issues, and he's come out about it. And much like Theo, he is now uh, you know, an advocate for people struggling with these things. He's front and center when it comes to mental health issues and he's out there uh, doing a lot of good and at the same time living his own life because these things stay with you and it's not like he's come through it and left it all behind he's still got things to deal with but he's a he's a terrific advocate for people who are experiencing the same thing with Theo we called it an aha moment with uh, with Corey we kind of called it the light switch moment and we did do that comparison when Corey Hurst joined us on the show earlier Robin and I had a conversation with Theo Fleury probably a couple months ago and and it's a little different but in some ways it isn't he talked about how he had a moment where he was at a book signing and he noticed one guy in the line who just seemed very withdrawn and was holding the book to his chest and came up to him eventually and put the book in front of him. And he looked at him and the guy turns to Theo and says, me too. And at that point, Theron said he recognized that everything he'd gone through, he'd had to find a way to try to help others. Did you have a click moment where all of a sudden you realized, okay, everything. Oh God, I, yeah. yeah. Where, where was that moment? So I, so I was at a, uh, so I, I always knew that I would try and help people in some form or what. I didn't really know how. But what really kick-started it was I was at a, a Coyotes hockey game in Arizona. And Jared Bouquet is a, a friend of mine. I played junior with him. He's an agent. And he's sitting at the game with a player that I think is supposed to be playing in the NHL at the time. I'm like, huh. I, you know, I know everyone. I'm like, and I asked him, I said, why, why aren't you playing? And he's like, well, I'm in rehab. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what do you mean? Your knees or whatever, your rehab, whatever. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in rehab for, for alcohol and, and drug addiction. And I'm like, okay, well, all right, you know, whatever. So I'm like, uh, I know there's obviously, when, with addiction, there's obviously mental health issues. Um, they go hand in hand. So I go, I'm like, let's go for coffee. You know, he's probably lonely. He's here, he's here by himself. It's like November, season starting. So I go, I take him for coffee. And I won't, I won't say the name of the person. Okay. Um, and I just look at them and I just start spilling my story because, you know, I, I know that there's uh, mental health and addiction go hand in hand. And he looks at me and he says, and he said the same thing. He's like, oh, my God, that's the same stuff that I go through um, almost with the OCD. And his mom had to he said his mom had to resuscitate him twice from fentanyl overdoses. Yeah. Wow. So it was at that moment I was like, OK, you know what? I'm not the only one out there and people are, I, I, at that point I didn't really see OCD as, as, as suicidal for people. And I just thought, you know, for me, that's what it was. And I didn't really realize that. And it was that moment when I kind of just realized like, like, Holy crap, like I have to get my story out there. People need to hear my story because I can't let this happen. Right. You can, we, and so I ended up, uh, 
I ended up going to uh, Bizarre, and then the chain of events just kind of happened. Like, I ended up going, Ron Smith, my coach from uh, the minors, he ends up passing away. And I end up going to his funeral in Toronto, and I meet Lana Quinn, who ends up, she's the head of the Sedins Foundation, and uh, or helps with doing that stuff. And she ends up connecting with the Players' Tribune, and, and it's like it was just the snowball effect came. And, and then when the article came out today, it's still the most, I mean, think of all the all the great athletes that have been in Players Tribune, like mm-hmm. Derek Jeter owns it, and all those guys that have had stories. Today, my story is still the most clicked on they've ever had. Um, you know, and it had like something like two million hits in in one day, or some ridiculous. So then that, that just told me, you know what, this is a bigger problem than I even knew it was. So um, it was quite incredible how how well. And I was terrified before it came out. I, I was like, well, here it goes. I'm going to be. Uh, this is it for me. I'll never work in the NHL again. Uh, and it's been completely the opposite. People have been amazing. Okay, now we get to our feature interview. This is the one interview where I went, wow, I didn't see that coming. I was a little surprised by that. And it's Ray Ferraro who joined us on our show. And uh, we started talking a little bit about the transition from being a hockey player to being a broadcaster. A lot of fans... And even some of us in the media probably assumed it's easy. Just go down and work between the benches, and it's it's not going to be that tough, which is really kind of uh, very dismissive of some of us. I've never been one of those ones to, to dismiss that kind of stuff because it's a skill set in broadcasting that's got to be learned, just as it would be if you're a hockey player or a hockey writer. But Ray was great. Well, the thing with Ray is we know what he was as a hockey player I saw him as a junior dating back to, you know, the Portland Winterhawks and, and the, you know, the Brandon Wheat Kings where he, he made more of a mark. The thing is, being a terrific hockey player, you know, 400-plus career goals in the NHL makes you a terrific hockey player. Doesn't mean you're going to be a terrific accountant or lawyer or broadcaster once your playing days are done. Oh, yeah. There's no guarantee. We've seen that over and over again. Ray Ferraro is one of the very best in the business. He calls it like he sees it. And a lot of people call it like they see it, but sometimes people don't see it the same way because, frankly, their take is off. Ray has got that ability to not only understand what he's seeing, but to relate it to fans in a way that... uh, makes sense to them he is at the very top of his game in terms of being an analyst on television and he's in great demand he's made the transition look easy even though the transition is far from that it's it's really interesting uh to me in a in a time where you know there's great divisiveness and you know that we see every day in the country and uh, certainly in the United States. And what I have noticed is that more people are aware of what they should be grateful for or thankful for. And I, and the reason I bring that up is because I, I'm not even kidding in, in the least. Now, I never was going to do anything else but be a hockey player. In grade one, um, my mom kept the scrapbook for our, me and my three brothers. And it was, you know, your class picture and what you were going to be when you grew up and, you know, your best friend and your school. And, and so I've written in there in six-year-old pencil ship, 
uh, <laughs> NHL player. And so I never wanted to do anything else. I didn't even really know that I was supposed to think about maybe I wasn't going to make it. And, you know, so just to be lucky enough and, and then to have the ball roll the way it did that I got to play so long, that's one thing. But then to get this, like, out of nowhere, I get traded to L.A., and I get a call from ESPN, and they're like, do you want to do some broadcasting? I'm like, well, I've never done it. And they, the, the guy that was in charge, Barry Sachs, who really I owe a lot of my career to, uh, who was the head of program or uh, talent at ESPN, too, he said, we think we can do this. So while I was playing, I started into broadcasting. And I'm, I'm, I've been around the NHL now since 1984, December of 84. And, um, man, I just incredibly lucky, guys. Like, it's, it's hard work, and I love the work. And, you know, I dedicated everything that I did, maybe to the detriment of some other things, uh, to play um, and to be in the NHL. It was everything to me. And then to get this uh, opportunity and to make, you know, to make what's happened out of it, um, you know, I started doing the Oilers games, as you guys know, and then, you know, TSN brought me on board. It's now unbelievably good at starting on my 11th year at TSN. And, um, man, it's just been, it's been awesome. I just love it. Well, Ray, I, I wouldn't put as much of it down to luck as you seem to. Um, I walked in the dressing room uh, on the other side of the notepad when you were still playing, and I actually remember a conversation I had with you. I don't expect you would, but you were very intense. Uh, you were very honest, and it, I got a great quote out of the deal, but it wasn't easy to do because players aren't happy when they lose, and, and that makes all the sense in the world. You've gone from one side of the notepad or the camera to the other. Has there been a, any point for you an eye-opener about, hey, this is a lot tougher than I thought it might be? Oh, right. Well, it didn't take very long, Robin, right when I started. Um, you know, I I retired in May of 02, and when Craig Simpson left the Oilers broadcasting crew to uh, get into coaching, I got a call asking if I wanted to audition. Now, I literally just retired three months earlier. Mm-hmm. And so I met Kevin Quinn at the airport, and we flew to Vancouver, or from Vancouver to uh, Edmonton. I didn't know Kevin. He was just starting as well with the Oilers. And they had a couple other people in there auditioning, and I got the job. So I just thought, like, well, okay, I got the job. You just, you know, I know how to talk. I talk a lot. And I've just finished playing. it. You know, I'll just start. And I had no idea that, you know, like you, there's somebody talking to you in your ear as you're talking on the air. I mean, you can imagine how disconcerting that is. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, the, the, the way I describe it to people is that while I'm talking about Monday, my producer is in my ear telling me about Tuesday. Yep. <laughs> I tell- and so I, I got to keep talking about Monday, but I'm listening to Tuesday. Plus I'm also listening to what the play by play guy says in case he asks me a question. And so, what I found is I didn't know how to prepare. I didn't know what to prepare for. And there was quite a learning curve, um, quite a quite a significant learning curve for me. And 
you know, I listen to my first year games sometimes and I'm like, that's like a car crash, but <laughs> you know, but I guess it turned out. Okay. Well, I tell you, I, I remember, uh, meeting you and, uh, Kevin at cops Coliseum during the lockout year, you were rel- right. relatively new, uh, into the bra i mean you 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 knew your way around by then but still relatively new i think i was moaning about how bad travel in the ahl was of course uh the lockout was on but what struck me back then ray uh and strikes me now is the edge you bring to the table that is that's not something made up i'm thinking back like to edmonton of the i think you probably recall the patrick stefan uh, oh yeah <laughs> play and i loved it because labardius had the great call and then you went off afterwards um from where you sit is it just about being you because to me what we hear from you isn't shtick and i can spot that a mile away i don't i don't ever think about how i should present this in an entertainment form mm-hmm I mean, I've refined how I get some things out. You know, I try to be a li- I'm always struggling to be a little more brief during the game. You know, I don't want to get burned talking when somebody shoots a puck from a crazy angle and goes in the net. You know, I don't want to be doing that. But I've, I've, since I was a little kid, I've always been, I guess, rather outspoken. Mm-hmm. And what, what I don't really talk about a lot was one of the reasons I, was outspoken was I was really insecure and so I found the way that I could sort of stake my claim and sort of mask my insecurity was by being louder or more opinionated and then all of a sudden I never even realized it and that was just the way I was and so it became when I started to broadcast I as I said about the learning curve what I did Conscience, consciously figure out for me is that I know that the game is incredibly hard because I just finished playing it. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are things that happen in the game that make no sense to anybody else. But if you're out there playing, you know that the puck spun and hit your stick and you missed an open net. Nobody can see it spin, but I know that happened. Um, I know you can lose your edge because, well, sometimes you just lose your edge. And I also know that sometimes you can make the best intention play and it turns out to be 180 degrees. It's a terrible play. So I keep that in mind. The second thing that I marry that with is that I'm going to be as honest and fair as I can be. Like there, there are some guys that I've met and, you know, I used to play against that I didn't like. But that can't color how I broadcast about them. Right. So nothing to do with it. I don't care who wins or loses. I can't stress this enough to people that that listen. And, I, you know, I can, I can talk about myself. If the Oilers win 10 in a row or lose 10 in a row, it does not matter to me one bit. I feel bad for the guys because that would suck mm-hmm. to lose 10 in a row. But... If they win the Stanley Cup, they're not going to say, hey, Ray's a really good broadcaster. We should give him a Stanley Cup ring. They don't care. I've got to do my job as true to the honesty and fairness that I think the job demands. That's 
I don't want to ever be known as somebody that, um, that could, that, that was pulling his punches a bit, that was, um, soft on one team and hard on another. I try to drive it right down the middle of the ice. And the one thing I will say about Patrick, uh, and that open net, <laughs> this is maybe I had too much internal knowledge on that play. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I, I played with Patrick, right? He was an 18 year old kid when he came in. The greatest critique of Patrick Seffen was that for all his talent, he wasn't really hard when he played. And that play struck me as the most soft plays. Like you're in the NHL, you're 20 feet out, shoot it in the net. What the hell do you have to go in there and just touch it into the net? And it bounced over a stick. And then the circus that went on beyond that. Like, honestly, guys, if you think, and Peter's call is awesome. Oh, spectacular. Because once Patrick fell in the corner, if the puck would have gone anywhere else, the play would have been over. But it came right to him, so he tried to save the play. And then he passed it right to Hemsky. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you're, you're like, like, how did that even happen? And then, whoa, wait a minute. Now the puck's up there. Whoa, wait, it's in here. <laughs> like, it couldn't, you couldn't script that play to be better for Edmonton and worse for for Dallas and, and Stefan. Um, but so for me, I, I knew him, and I'm like, Jeez, Patrick, shoot it in a damn net. I was so mad. You sounded and indignant. Then, <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? Shoot it in the net. It's wide open. And then when you think about it, if he shot it in the net, it would have been really boring. This was way better. Yeah. The the other thing, too, and, and we were listening to it just before we, we got to you today because we talked to Peter a couple of weeks ago about it, and it's a real highlight for him. He says he still gets goosebumps. But it, you're right when you talk about it being a circus, and we only see one ring of the circus on television, but Peter had a great call. There was a wonderful stoppage where nobody said anything, and the crowd noise was there, and then you jumped in. It was it was it couldn't be a, a more perfect scenario but man, everybody was just so real and raw. It was it was it was really a magical moment, and it was just crazy. The there are crazy plays that happen, you know, like when you're broadcasting. But you know, and you're trying to describe everything that's going on. I also did that uh, the one game where there was the brawl, and I think Mike Bishai was in the bench fighting somebody on the ice. Yep. Yep. Right. Like, how are you trying to do? That was a game. It was Atlanta, I think. And I'm like how are you trying to describe that and keep your thoughts going all at once? Like there's certain things that just happen and you're like, you're out on a, the thinnest of wires and you're doing the best you can with it. And sometimes it just works. That day really worked. And, you know, I've had some, some games I think that I would consider real highlights of my broadcasting career. One of them was a, Canada Russia World Junior gold medal game, and it was amazing. It, uh, Canada won six five, and it was one of the one of the best games that I've ever seen or done. I also did uh, along with Gord Miller. Um, well, Gordon and I did that junior game, of course, but um, we also did uh, last spring's playoff. We did the San Jose Vegas game, and I mean that was absolute pandemonium for twenty minutes. Right? It was like it wasn't one call. It was it was a the series of, of series of things that kept happening. And um, you know, we 
you get back to your room and you listen to it after. And some days you go, oh, I didn't quite get it. And that one, we were like, oh, we got that one. Kale McCarr's first goal last year in the playoffs, we got that one. Yeah. You know, like sometimes you you don't get it. But that one, we like that one, we just got like, I don't even know that sometimes I'll say something and uh, Cammy, my wife will say after she'll say, why did you say that? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. And so we were going through the highlight with Makar and um, uh, they showed his parents and, you know, the building was going off. It was so loud. And then they showed his parents and I don't know why, but I thought of him as a little kid because his parents had just flown in for the game, you know, kind of like going to a Bantam game. Right. And, and I said, um, I don't know what that kid dreams about, but it couldn't be any better than that. And I just thought of a little boy dreaming of the NHL. And then he scored in his first shift or his first period of his first game. That's a playoff game. And mom and dad are there. So there you go. Ray Ferraro wrapping things up with our feature interview today. We, you know, we just, Robin, we couldn't get to everybody, but we have to send a huge thanks to everybody who's been part of our podcast through the last six months. Ricky Ray, our friend, a writer, Ben Kuzma out in Vancouver, Peter Labardius, Kenny Reed, Corey Clinton, who, uh, who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for a great cause. Yep. Thanks, Corey. He uh, helped raise money for the mustard seed, uh, of which I'm a part in Edmonton. We do our best to alleviate uh, poverty for those uh, living on the streets in Edmonton. And what Corey did, not only a bucket list item, but something that helped a lot of people. And also kind of walked us through the whole process. And it was not easy just to get there. Uh, anyway, Corey, thanks for coming on. Mitch Blair out in Regina along with Rod Peterson. Also a fantastic guest, A.J. Jakubik in Ottawa. As things were kind of uh, wrapping up in the nation's capital, we had to talk to A.J. Jack Cookson over at Pro-Am Sports. Can't thank him enough for mm-hmm. his support through the entire series that we've done so far. Dwayne Vigneault, who's the, the, the head guy with the Grey Cup committees now, for the Canadian Football League, Jerry Forbes, radio voice in Calgary, now retired but still casts a huge shadow on the community in Calgary. Also, Terry Jones. We had Jonesy on a few weeks ago, and Jonesy had some great stories. What a surprise. You know what? And Jonesy sort of kicked off a murderer's row for us of media guys. I've been on the road enough with Jonesy, as people out there uh, in Edmonton at least will know, Wrote against him for years while I was at the Journal. Went across the street to the Sun. Wrote with him for years. Jonesy's got a million stories. Uh, he put out that curling book, which is absolutely terrific. I could spend three hours with Jonesy. He came in the studio, which was wonderful to have him sitting here, uh, regaling us with tales from the road. And not all of it made the air, by the way. Oh, no. And just, just to, you know what? Jonesy's getting up in age now. Um there's far more stories uh, under the bridge than are still to come, but it's always terrific to sit down with large. I hope he gets around and writes a lot of those stories down too, because it would be yeah, that'd be a fun book. Also, not all of them, not all not, of them. <laughs> no, you're right. And also a big thank you to both uh, broadcasters Tim Spelsey and Grant Pollock, who just last week had an opportunity to kind of give us the lowdown on what it was like back in the Alberta, the Battle of Alberta days back in the. 1980s. Anyway, it's been uh, it's been a great start, and much more to come in the year 2020. Do you want to say anything as we move through this holiday period? Anything in particular? Well, I would thank the people out there who are taking the time 
to click on the links and listen to what we have to say. I hope you keep coming back. We're going to endeavor to have guests on and subject matter that has you wanting to come back. And, you know, we're just getting started with this, and I'm hopeful that uh, our audience will grow and that we will continue to provide you with a reason to come back to us. So aside from that, uh, you know, happy holidays to everybody, and um, we'll be talking to you again soon. Absolutely. And also, if you're interested in sponsoring us, we would love to hear from you. All you have to do is drop us an email at mightymouth@shaw.ca. Also, make sure you continue to tell your friends and you subscribe and hit the RSS to our feed on your favorite ear candy sites. Coming up next, it's going, and this is a great way to kick off the new year, it's Behind the Dressing Room Door. It's an episode with Barry Stafford and Ken Lowe with the Edmonton Oilers, and that's coming up here in early January, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Both guys have seen it all, not only with the Edmonton Oilers, but with the Edmonton Eskimos, because... Uh, because Ken Lowe was the trainer with the Eskimos through some of those Eskimo heydays, the glory days in the 80s. So, And then Staffy's just been around forever with the Edmonton Oilers and has seen it all from not only Stanley Cups. Hmm. He's been in the, what is, Spangler Cups. He's played with the University of Alberta Golden Bears under Claire Drake. Yes. There's, of course, the Winter Olympics, the gold medals, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be a great episode, and that's going to kick us off here coming up in the first couple of weeks in January. All right, Robin, that's it. I just can't believe, where is the time gone? Yeah. So on behalf of all of us, happy holidays to everybody. And a happy new year, 2020, coming your way. Thanks. Thanks.